are listening to the podcast for nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and collecting bear-themed carvings and novelties. This is season two, episode four, Reconciliation and Brave. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm so happy to be sitting across the internet from Kerry Combs. Oh my gosh. And that is the extent of my Scottish accent for the day. Like I'm back and playing D and D, and I've just run into an awesome dwarf character because they're always Scottish. For some reason, they're always Scottish. Oh man, thank you for that beautiful introduction. There was a funny tweet that was like, "Everyone, the D and the default fantasy accents have been reassigned. All dwarves are now old timey radio announcers." And <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we should try that for our game. Today we are talking about brave. One of my favorite Pixar movies, and specifically the theme of reconciliation. I was very happy to see this one again because I hadn't seen it since it came out. And boy, I had a lot of different reactions as a more grown up now than I did when it first came out. What was your reaction when it first came out and how old were you? I don't know. I was probably in my, it was under 10 years old, so I would have been in my early 20s. But I think I, I relate a lot more to Eleanor the mother as a 30 year old, I think, than I did to Merida when I was younger. So when you first saw the movie, you were really on Merida's team the whole time? More so, but I still got frustrated with her as a character. And I think rewatching it as an adult, I get very frustrated at her selfishness and self-centeredness. And But we kind of got to start there yeah, so, right. so, so that the movie can go somewhere, right? I had to watch this with subtitles and it was hard. Were you watching it with subtitles because you couldn't understand the Scottish accents or because you wanted to catch all the dialogue? Both. Yeah. And my dog really did not like this. There's a lot of barking dogs in this film, which I found out. Uh-huh, yeah. Because Declan was going wild. Dogs so. and bears. Dogs and bears, both of which are unacceptable by my dog's standards. That's funny. So what do we have for our scripture quote this time around? The scripture quotation is from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is from Brave. This is the riddle given by the witch. Fate be changed, look inside, mend the bond, torn by pride. Do you want to jump back in with um, reconciliation in the Christian context to frame it? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Sure. Okay. Well, you can put your riff there and then I can riff on your riff. You know, riff on my riff? That's a thing. Reconciliation is such an important concept in the Christian theology. And here's just a quick primer of how I understand it. Reconciliation is the action of returning to right relationship after a break or an estrangement or an isolation or a separation. And we return to that right relationship by acknowledging the damage done, seeking forgiveness, and working to repair. When we invite our children to say, I'm sorry to each other, we always make sure they also ask, are you okay? Can I help you get better Aww. as part of the apology? Uh, and you know, for better or worse, it doesn't always work. Oftentimes yeah. the apology is just sort of uh, perfunctory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even for grownups though it is. Even for grownups. Uh, so when we think about reconciliation in this Christian context, we have this wonderful quote from Second Corinthians where we start with the concept of being in Christ. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The concept of being in Christ here, as I understand it, is, the, is, the, is this concept of being in right relationship with God, that to be in Christ means to be in right relationship. Because as God, as we understand God as a trinity of persons and a unity of being, the second person of the trinity, the Christ, is in perfect relationship with God. 
so perfect, in fact, that it is a unity of being. So to be in Christ means to be reaching towards that right relationship and being called into that right relationship. And so reconciliation is the movement towards that right relationship through amendment of life, through seeking repair for damage, through seeking forgiveness, and so on and so forth. I like that you included the amending behaviors. I think one of the misconceptions about forgiveness in a Christian context is the idea that to forgive is just simply to wash away the the slate and say we can move on. We hear all these incredible stories about communities providing forgiveness after awful things have happened to them. I think of the Amish community whose children mm-hmm. were were shot and they they provide they forgave the shooters and it does not happen by saying and you get to walk free nothing nothing you know needs to happen but that there's an expectation of change of behavior. And I know as priests when we hear someone's confession in the ministry of in the sacrament of reconciliation if someone is not willing to amend their behavior and name what they've done wrong and change true reconciliation cannot happen when we had our moana episode we kept on saying the mission of god and i was really grateful when you clarified the mission of god is reconciliation reconciliation between humans and god between humans and each other and between us and all of creation that that is ultimately god's goal and desire for us that we be reconciled. And the quotation from 2 Corinthians confirms that when it talks about Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Right. Not individuals, yes. not one piece, not one group of people who is believing some sort of correct dogma, the world, which in scripture means all of creation. The mm-hmm. world in Greek is the word cosmos, and which is where we get, you know, cosmonaut, cosmology, so forth. Not cosmetology, that's different. That's really uh, different. <laughs> but we're talking about the whole of creation, the universe is being reconciled back to God. And and we get to be part of that. You know, Paul invites us to be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors of reconciliation, people who are working on God's behalf to be reconcilers in the world. And to go back to your your concept about, mm-hmm. you know, forgiveness as part of of reconciliation, there's a really horrible uh, turn of phrase in English, mm. which is forgive and forget. Oh, totally. Yeah. Which just is a completely improper understanding of forgiveness. They are two completely separate things. If you, if you can forget something, then it's probably not something that you need to either seek forgiveness for mm-hmm. or to bestow forgiveness on because forgiveness is a very holy thing. It is something that helps us to repair those relationships, to come back into right relationship with one another. As opposed to forgetting, what forgiveness does is it <clears throat> keeps us from having the past have power. All right, we, hmm. we don't forget the past, but it no longer has power to control our future. Hmm. If we don't forgive, if we do not seek that repair of relationship, then the past continues to have power over the future. When I hear you say that, I'm reminded of a dear friend of mine in high school. If people were mean to me or something bad happened, I would forgive them immediately. And I, by the next day, I would be fine. Everything would be over because it didn't, either it didn't truly hurt me or, and probably more likely, I wasn't truly forgetting, but I was just repressing it down deep. But my dear friend, Carol, would keep my grudges for me. (laughs) She would be mad at these, which is a wonderful thing for a friend to do, except it would kind of get in the way of her relationship with these folks because there was not true at any true reconciliation there. We had on the one hand, my forgetting, no real forgiving and her remembering, but nothing had ever, no conversation ever came of it. And it just kind of made a lot of things awkward. So somewhere in the middle of that, of grudge holding, which can sour relationships, which can build over time, and I think we definitely see this in Brave, um, versus just forgetting immediately and not truly moving forward, neither of those lives into the richness of what relationships can offer. Mm -hmm. And I want to clarify one thing I said a minute ago Mm. about forgiveness. Desiring to repair a relationship doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship goes forward. It It can end where it where it broke mm-hmm. right so so think about in in the very severe case of say an abusive relationship 
the repair that can happen in that relationship is not coming back together because right. the abuser probably isn't going to stop whatever behavior was abusive. Mm-hmm. But it can still, but forgiveness can still be offered as a way to unchain oneself from the abuser. And I'm remember, reminded of the, uh, the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ninth step is to make direct amends to such people that you have harmed whenever possible. And then there's a, but there's a really important accept, accept when to do so would injure them or others. And so the the concept of forgiveness is always about bringing people back into right relationship with oneself, with each other and with God. But if you, if doing so is going to continue an injury, then there, the forgiveness there isn't the, you're on the wrong path of forgiveness. There might be another path to find, to find reconciliation. And we see cases like that so many times with, you know, parents and children or, or friends or lovers. One of one person wants to repair the relationship, um, wants to always be the one to reach out, to try to fix things. Um, and if the other person isn't willing to or is unable to, then the pattern continues. And that person who's doing the reaching out just gets exhausted, gets, gets abused again in that cycle. Um, and so I think what, what I love in Brave is that there are, two people who do desire eventually reconciliation with one another and take those steps together. There's not, it's not the mother constantly reaching out to Merida or vice versa. There's a mutuality there. And I think Mm -hmm. your point about, um, you know, making amends with the person involved only if it won't do them further harm is an important part to keep in mind as that has been so tragically misunderstood, especially in a Christian context of, of people being encouraged to stay with abusive spouses or friends or family members. Why don't we shift over and, and talk about Brave uh, yeah. and, and see if we can apply this understanding of reconciliation to the plot of the movie. In the first 10 minutes of Brave, Eleanor spends the entire time telling Merida what a princess doesn't do or is not like. Mm. There's a lot of do nots, but there's yeah. not any. There's a couple. You should be. There's a few right. sprinkled in there of what you should be, but it's almost entirely a princess doesn't do what you're doing right now. I, and well, what she ends up saying, the one, well, the one I remember, she says, "Above all, a princess strives for perfection." What an impossible standard! Right, and it's not until Eleanor becomes a bear that she realizes that you can't be perfect. Right. When she starts knocking things over. Yes, all, all her, over the her place. grace and training cannot provide her with the experience she needs to become a bear. I love the prim, proper bear, Eleanor, though. Every time she's sort of like walking around with her paws up and her crown on, that cracks it's me It's delightful. Up. Or when she takes <laughs> off the crown so gently and then goes and gnaws on a bunch of fish. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, you saw this already, but I'll probably post a picture on Twitter if anyone's interested. I realized when watching this movie that the entire plot can be summarized through the medium of hair and mm-hmm. hairstyles. Um, obviously with Merida's flowing red locks being a huge um, image for this movie, it's on all the posters, her, her wild curly hair kind of encapsulated in this idea is the outfit that her mother picks for her when the suitors are presented is that tight blue dress with the ridiculous hair covering and all of her hair is just smooshed under it. And she kind of obstinately pulls out the one lock, one little red curl. And in order to shoot um, in the archery scene, when she's saying, I will shoot for my, I'll fight for my own hand. She, you know, releases her hair from under the cloak, but then she also has to literally rip the dress that she's been Mm -hmm. placed in, in order to break this traditional role. And then on the mother's side, she has those very stiff, very prim pigtails, the whole beginning of the movie. And then she becomes a bear, which, you know, that's a whole other story. You got but at hair the end all over. Of the movie, You're not naked. <laughs> she's all furry. Yeah, she's not, but she always wants to be wearing clothes. But at the end, her hair is unbound. And in that final scene, when they're standing in front of the tapestry, um, Eleanor's hair is unbound, kind of almost girlish looking. And then the tap, the, the camera pulls out and it shows the tapestry of the mm. bear and Merida holding hands. And Merida's hair is like a very, very prominent feature. Mm. Is, is her hair bound in the original tapestry? I can't remember. I think it is. I think it's I think her it is too. kind of showing in that in that fancy outfit. Pause the podcast for just a second while I look it up. Uh, Brave tapestry. It's 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 it's, it's, it's very it's restrained, there, but it's not. 
yeah, it's oh, yeah, it's not so, as flowy. I didn't even think about that. It's not as flowy as it is. Oh, yeah, but, wow. but it's not it's not the big huge hair that she has in the in the uh in the second tapestry. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Good call, yes. Adam. So you have this this so Carrie is gonna send this uh this new meme out about all the hair. <laughs> but yeah, because because when Eleanor uh stops being the bear when she's returned to her human form, obviously the, her clothes were gone, so therefore whatever she had in her hair was also gone. And then at the very end, when they're riding through the forest, she has just basically one little braid or one little um, pony, ponytail uh, keeping her bangs out of her face. That's really it. This is the podcast episode that we realize we don't really know the names for hairstyles. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. I, I am learning to do my daughter's hair, though. I don't oh, good. know. I don't know the names of everything I'm doing. My goal is to just make her hair look like rays from The Force Awakens every time I do it. Because it's perfectly, it's perfectly the length to do like the three little the bobs. The three little bun love, things. I, it looks really loops. cute. Yeah. That's actually how I wear my hair to the gym. There, there you go. Awesome. They're very small though. They're a little like. Um, I love the bit where where Merritt is in the in the white cap and she pulls the she pulls the lock uh, out a couple of times and it's just so obstinate. The the original poem we chose, well, the po- poem for the nerd quote is to mend the bond torn by pride. And framing the movie in that way, you realize that they, they do both have pride. Merida is convinced that to marry someone um, is the wrong wrong thing for her. She doesn't want it, but she's not willing to learn about why more about why that might be helpful. And her mother is unwilling to listen to why that might be the wrong decision for her daughter and to come to a compromise. But the, the idea that the central issue is pride mm. um, mm-hmm. is interesting to me versus misunderstanding or a lack of perspective. And pride keeps them from listening to each other. Yes. They, they are so, they're so caught in their own mindsets that they aren't, they aren't able to reach across and listen to one another. And my favorite part of this entire movie is the conversation that they're having with each other, but not with each other. Oh, yes. I love that because it shows how alike they are. Yeah, and they're having, but they're having a great chat. Yeah, it's a wonderful Merida, conversation. Meredith's talking to Angus the horse, and Eleanor's talking to Fergus. They're having this disconnected conversation, which just shows that break, that that separation, that estrangement that they have uh, one with the other. Before we get the disconnected conversation, Eleanor tells the story of the ancient kingdom which is divided into four parts. The oldest prince wanted to rule the land for himself, and that leads to war, chaos, and ruin. Mm. Later in the movie, when Merida finds the, the, the ruin of the castle, she sees the relief carving that's, that's torn, that's broken, with right. the three brothers on one side and the older brother on the other, which is obviously very reminiscent of the tapestry. And what I really like about the fact that we have that ancient kingdom as part of this is it shows the it shows how important the concept of reconciliation is not just interpersonally but also societally Mm -hmm. Um, because when merida uh, is in the hall with the four clans all behind their barricades it looks like they're having a snowball fight basically but with weapons um merida then tells the story of the ancient kingdom and so we realize oh merida was listening to her mom Mm -hmm. at some point right right she yeah she quotes back that thing about legends having truth to them right 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 right. legends uh legends are lessons they ring with truths that's right it shows that she was listening to her mom and she tells the story to the clans to help them realize that they needed to reconcile as well. So we have reconciliation happening interpersonally between Merida and Eleanor and also amongst the four clans, which we assume are descended from this ancient kingdom. Well, you assume that. I thought I never thought of that in my life, but that's a great explanation. Um, did you ever see... So I discovered because of the magic of Disney+, Plus, there's an additional short called The Legend of Mordu, which goes into each of the four brothers had a strength and that the father wanted them to rule together because their combined gifts would make for a stronger kingdom. So once the oldest one's strong, obviously, the second one's just, the third brother's compassionate, and the fourth brother is wise. And so there's this beautiful idea in there that our differences, our diversity, actually, when, we're, when we can be reconciled and united, make us stronger. They don't all have to be the same. 
just as the four clans are certainly very different from each other, but that if they're united in purpose and reconciled to one another, they can be stronger together, even if they have differences. Mm, yeah. I preached a Trinity Sunday sermon a couple of years ago, which I, I really liked. And the concept behind it was um, that the Trinity shows us that there can be diversity without division and unity without uniformity. Sure. And we can see that here when we're looking for reconciliation. It doesn't mean homogenization. Absolutely not. Yeah. Homogeneity? Homogeneity. Homogeneity. That's the word. word. Sure. We talked earlier about Merida being in the outfit with the white uh, hood. Silly hat. Silly head where her hair is really tight in there. Mm -hmm. And she says, I can't move or breathe. Which it's is too tight. That's it's too tight. It's constricting. She's being smothered by mm-hmm. the image her mother wants her to be. There's a moment there though, right before they go, yep. they go to the thing where it looks like they might actually have the co- the talk. But then they they both move away. Oh, and what her mother says about the dress, it's you know, it's too tight. They can't move, I can't breathe. She says it's perfect. Mm-hmm. But again, with the perfection, her daughter looks like the perfect princess she imagined that she thinks they need. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they have that moment. They come so close. And then she's, she just, I think she admonishes Merida and she, she says, like, she you knows, know, yeah. yeah. And they just, they go back to their pattern. And, and that's, that's what happens a lot. When, when we aren't seeking reconciliation, we fall into patterns of, of separation and mm-hmm. estrangement. It's so easy to once you are estranged from someone to stay estranged. Right. And to keep seeing them in the way that you need to see them or that you want to see them. Eleanor burns Merida's bow oh, that was and immediately all, yeah. regrets it mm-hmm. and pull, tries to pull it out of the fire and it's a little bit too late. You hear the bowstring snap. They are very similar, mother and daughter, to each other. Um, but you can definitely tell the difference in their ages and their maturity levels. Merida being a, you know, a, a teenager growing into her own and fighting against this system that she rips the tapestry, which her mother loves and has no regrets about it. At that moment, Eleanor has regret and Merida does not. Um, And she says those kind of unforgivable words of, I'm not going to be like you. I'd rather die than be like you. You are a beast. After the archery scene when Merida shoots for her own hand, Eleanor says, it'll be fire and sword if it's not set right. Mm -hmm. So she really understands the, the difficulty of keeping these people together of that universal or I guess national reconciliation. And you said it'll be fire and sword? Yes. Which are the two things that the mother and daughter use to hurt each other. Merida puts the sword through the tapestry. And Eleanor uses the fire to burn the bow. Shut the front door. That's amazing. Yeah, there it is. Wow. (laughs) I love these movies. I was looking at everyone's hair. Yeah. Um, so she gets to the forest after the, uh, ripping the tapestry and, and she's trying to find the witch and she follows the will-o'-wisps, which if you're D&D players like Carrie and me, Don't will-o'-wisps, in, towards them. <laughs> will-o'-wisps in Dungeons and Dragons are bad. <laughs> they killed Derek, one of the NPCs when my husband was DMing for me. Mm. R.I.P. Oh. Derek. Oh, Derek. Um, I named my mace after him. Derek the mace. That's a good name yeah. for a mace. <laughs> my holy mace. Sorry. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, they're but dangerous, they're, but they're but nice they're in this movie. Good in this movie. They're creepy, though. They're still creepy. What if the wisps are like his brothers and their people trying oh, to maybe. bring reconciliation through Merida's actions? That would be. <laughs> That would be cool. Okay. Awesome, but yeah, right? there. So, so they, she gets to the witch and she specifically asks for a spell to change my mum. Yes. And that'll change my fate. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Not change me. Nope. She shouldn't change, change at all. But the, but the spell ultimately changes them both. Yeah. It changes the physicality of the mother, but over the course of their interactions, it changes them both. It's also interesting that she lies to Eleanor about the cake, calling it a peace offering. It's really hard to watch. Like when, when her mother's like feeling ill and falling over, I know like she should yeah. be worried. And she's not worried at all. She's completely self-centered She's in that so moment. Focused. Yeah. Like you feel, you want to change your mind about the betrothal and her mom, like her mom could be dying. Like this witch could have given her poison, but I, I, I it must be so painful for the mother as a bear even as a bear, to hear that I didn't ask her to turn you into a bear. I just asked her to change you. To change you. Um, yep. I can't imagine how painful that would be to hear from a loved one. Mm-hmm. 
I just want you to be different. And on top of that, now she's a bear. Yeah. And three times in that set of scenes right there in a row, Meredith says, it's not my fault. Mm. The, um, the witch is to blame and it's not my fault again. That scaffy witch gave me a gammy spell. I'm going to start using the word scaffy. Scab, what does that even mean? I have no idea, but it's great. And it's in a Disney movie. Yeah, so, so it's got to be clean. So it's, it's a clean swear. It's like I Googled um, Jing's Crivens help my Bob means like, <laughs> my goodness me, help my Robert. Like my, my dear Robert, help my Bob. <laughs> okay. So we get the witches, the, the, uh, we get the, the poem about the, 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 the pride, which we talked about earlier. And then we have the, one of the lower points in the movie when they're in the rain, they wake up the next morning. It's a beautiful day. So Eleanor tries to make breakfast and you see her trying to maintain the image, the queenly persona she has before she's wearing her crown. She's sitting upright. She's spread a beautiful table with homemade cutlery and berries and water for her daughter. But it turns out that she's not good at living in the woods. She's not really a bear. Um, as Meredith points out, the berries are nightshade and poisonous and the water has worms in it. So instead, Meredith takes on the role of caregiver and provider because she's more at home in the woods. There's an, another moment of role reversal when Meredith catches the fish and gives it to Eleanor to eat. And Eleanor kind of sticks up her nose at it and Meredith says the line to her that we heard earlier in the movie when Eleanor's trying to feed haggis to the boys. Meredith says, how do you know you won't like it if you don't try it? So she's kind of being the parent in that situation. And do you want to talk a little bit about the music in that scene and that montage of them in yeah, the woods? When they're catching the fish and then, and then Eleanor goes in and starts acting like a bear catching fish that are jumping up out of the water. <clears throat> we have this beautiful song and um, let me do the first couple lines. And then, and I think you have the last couple. Mm. Um, we, we, we have two images for love. This love, it is a distant star guiding us home wherever we are. So the concept of love being that which brings us back to where we where we live, what our where our home is, even mm. if it feels distant, even if it feels far away, it's still guiding us. Um, and we can see that in their relationship; they mm -hmm. do love each other, and yet they they are estranged. You can still love and have a separation. And the goal of love then is to bring back into right relationship, which is what we're calling reconciliation. And then we have the next two lines, which I think are the really really important ones. The other image for love is this love, it is a burning sun, shining light on the things that we've done. It's not just the sunshine, it's burning. There's, there's a refiner's fire kind of understanding here that our love is being uh, shine. The, the light is like a, it's like a searing light that reveals, it's a revealing light shining light on the things that we've done the things that we're not proud of the things that we want to hide and yet these are the things that we need to confess in order to have leave let ourselves be open to reconciliation um and i'm going to come back to that when we get to the end of the movie um yeah. but let why don't you do your couple lines because then well, they I, follow right on sure and i would i mean that's from a, a much grander perspective the ones that stuck out to me in this montage with the song was the ones about that kind of seemed to be describing their relationship on a very personal individual level. So the lyrics go, tried to speak to you every day, but each word we spoke, the wind blew away. How did we come to this? And that really, I think speaks to when estrangement happens, you can kind of wake up and look and say, how did we get so far apart that mm -hmm. we can't even understand each other's words, mm. even though they clearly are so alike, they speak past each other all the time. And then as they start to kind of come together, the lyrics say, and can we keep what we've only begun? Could these walls come crumbling down? So the tenuousness of the peace that they're starting to form out there in the woods with, you know, mom as a bear and Merida as the caregiver um, is tenuous. And it could, it could disappear if they returned to being how they were before, but they keep taking those baby steps towards each other. And there's a there's another verse from the letter to the Ephesians talking about uh, what Christ does is break down the quote unquote dividing wall mm -hmm. in Ephesians chapter two. And it reminded me of that line in the song, could these walls come crumbling down? There's that great cartoon. Yeah, of, with Jesus with the eraser. Yeah. yeah. And um, we, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the, uh, it's in the show yeah, notes. Beautiful. But the um, idea that, you know, Christ is the one who helps us tear down those barriers between one another. 
interposed between all of us is the love of God, is the image of Christ in one another. And that's how we relate to one another Mm -hmm. in moments of misunderstanding and crisis. Um, It's the the love that flows between us. Absolutely. And, And that if we deny a person, if we kind of say, oh, they're just being obstinate, they're just being rude we sum them up in that one easy way that we want to see them as because it makes Mm. them easier to dismiss. Whereas if we remember that they are full, rich, diverse, made in the image of God with the image of Christ in each of them, it's harder to write them off. Yeah, that's really good. They make it to the, that ruin that we talked about earlier. And um, when they meet more do, and by the way, I'm never showing this movie to my kids because it is terrifying. It is. (laughs) I don't know how old my kids need to be to see this movie because it scares me, and I'm 37. 30 at least. <laughs> um, but when Meredith's escaping from Mordu, she does a leap of faith. Oh, that part was so beautiful. Right? A yeah. leap of faith to her mother and then rides her mother's back when her mother has, in this moment, uh, removed that queenly, prim, proper, standing mm-hmm. on, ba- on hind legs and in order to protect her daughter. Uh, takes on the posture of the bear to get away from Mordu. And then later on, of course, fights Mordu in that same posture. And that mother bear, you know, scary mother bear who's going to do anything to protect her cubs, we see it. It's kind of the best of both worlds. She hasn't forgotten her heart and who she is, but she's able to, you know, make use of that bear form in that moment when Merida's leaping from the bear who has completely forgotten himself, who probably didn't have a lot of protective instinct to begin with, and leaping up towards her mother. You see kind of her balance between these two former humans, uh, one of whom's a lot more like a human than the other. And you're right, it's very much a leap of faith. So we already talked about going back and Merida um, talking to the clans in order to let her Mm. mother get into the castle. I think it's interesting when, when Merida's asking them to mend... She says that, you know, I've, I need to mend my mistake and mend our bond. She's looking directly at her mother, mm-hmm. but she's speaking to the clans and saying, I need to repair what's been broken between us as a daughter of, of the king. I've kind of essentially removed myself from our society by not playing by our agreed upon rules. But she's actually talking to her mother. But in that moment, they're able to come to a compromise together in a way that I guess heals the clans. Oh, by reminding them of their shared history. So again, the stories that they share, the history is what brings them together. And then they get upstairs and they get to the tapestry and Merida is still laboring under this delusion that all she needs to do is stitch it up. And she says, we just need needle and thread. (laughs) And it's such a great encapsulation of Mm -hmm. how we often think reconciliation happens, which is just this surface level. Slap it together, stitch it together. You know, I'm sorry, and then walk away. We, then we have lots of action. You know, we get to the Standing Stones, the fight with Mordu. And then Merritt uh, is wondering why the tapestry, which she stitched up very hastily, yeah. didn't do what she thought it was going to do. And then she apologizes. I've got, I think I, have the, I wrote down the whole quote because it was so beautiful. She says, oh, mom, I'm sorry. This is all my fault. I did this to you, to us. You've always been there for me. You've never given up on me. I just want you back. I want you back, mummy. I love you. So she admits that it's she's at fault, that it wasn't just between her, it's just a problem with her, but it was a problem with us, not just her and her mother, but with the whole clans, I see that as. Mm-hmm. And that she wants her back and calling, you know, calling her mummy with that the ultimate like endearing relational word between the two of them. And then we have the callback to the song. This love, it is a burning sun, shining light on the things that we've done. Oh, man. With the second sunrise inching its way along the ground until we, until we get back to, until we reach Merida and Eleanor and Eleanor is human again. The sunrise shines that, that burning sun back onto their relationship as it's being reconciled. And I, I just love that call back to the song. And I was wondering when I was looking back at this, are they both working on the tapestry? when they're, there's that scene and they're kind of like together and they're giggling together or something, then Eleanor like hugs Merida and they turn away and you see the whole tapestry. Mm-hmm. I think they're both working on it, which if you think about the, the tapestry as a metaphor, the first one being Eleanor entirely imagining how her family should be and is expected to be. Merida slashing it with the sword, 
mm-hmm. trying to hastily stitch it up, but what actually is required for reconciliation is a much more thorough reweaving together, not just stitching it together, but really to reweave it. And then they're both working on it together. And Eleanor has changed. She's a little bit more loose. Her hair's down. She's not expecting her daughter to get married to a total stranger. But then Merritt is also doing a kind of thing with her mother, a more traditional woman's handicraft by doing the tapestry mm, with her, which yeah. I imagine she huh. wasn't involved in before, or very interested in. So they're, they've both taken on a little bit of each other. They're still different, but they're cooperating. And I, I kind of wonder if there's a later scene where Merida's teaching her mom how to, to shoot a bow or something, <laughs> um, or, or maybe find berries that aren't poisonous. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting. We have this second tapestry. It's this new creation, right? If anyone is mm. in Christ, there is a new creation. And in the first tapestry, Merida and Eleanor are looking looking outwards. But in the second tapestry, they're looking at each other, holding hands. Yeah. And, and so that's that's this nice kind of holding it all together, the whole movie together. This understanding of reconciliation being coming back together, holding hands, looking one another in the eye. Our book group returns this week with chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. The polyjuice potion is tricky, requiring several restricted ingredients plus a month of time to brew. Even more disturbing is the last ingredient, a piece of the person they want to turn into. Anything but toenails. Gryffindor plays Slytherin in Quidditch, but something is wrong with the bludgers. They keep trying to murder Harry, eventually breaking his arm. He is undaunted and catches a snitch to the chagrin of Malfoy. Help arrives in the form of Professor Lockhart, who makes things worse by removing the bones in Harry's arm rather than mend them. But what's one more stay in the hospital wing for the boy who lived? That night, Harry is awoken by Dobby the house elf and discovers that the bludger, as well as the mishap with platform nine and three quarters, are all part of Dobby's plan to keep Harry away from Hogwarts now that history is to repeat itself. Their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of some teachers and another petrified victim, Colin Creevy. It seems that the Chamber of Secrets has indeed been opened again. Chapter 11, The Dueling Club. The plan to brew the polyjuice potion and expose the heir of Slytherin is now more pressing than ever. To continue, they need to steal ingredients from Snape, an unenviable and dangerous task, but one they do so successfully although Harry has a sneaking suspicion that Snape knows. In light of the recent attacks, the school provides top-notch defensive education in the form of a dueling club led by Lockhart and assisted by Snape. It goes from bad to worse when Malfoy unleashes a snake that darts towards the muggle-born Justin Finch-Fletchley. Harry shouts at the snake to stop, and it does, but the fact that he shouted in parcel tongue, a.k.a. snake language, gives credence to the rumors that Harry is Slytherin's heir. After trying to smooth things over with Justin's friends, Harry finds himself again at the wrong place at the wrong time and stumbles over the newest petrification victims, Justin himself and nearly headless Nick. It seems a conversation with Dumbledore is in order. Chapter 12, The Polyjuice Potion. Despite Dumbledore's entreaties, Harry keeps quiet and doesn't tell him anything. Christmas arrives and the potion is ready. After a spectacular dinner, Harry and Ron drug Crab and Goyle, lock them in a closet, and steal their shoes and some hair. Totally normal, healthy behavior for two 12-year-olds. The transformation, while gross, is successful, but Hermione refuses to come along for some reason. The disguised Harry and Ron find Malfoy and the Slytherin common room, where Malfoy admits he doesn't know who the heir of Slytherin is, but that whoever opened the chamber last time was expelled and is probably still in prison. Their hour time limit is up, and the boys make their way back to Hermione, where there's been a mistake. Hermione didn't change into a Slytherin girl like planned. She turned into a cat, and that cannot be good. I love the line in chapter 10 that Ron says, Lockhart will sign anything if it stands still long enough. <laughs> He's so got his number. And I, um, when he shows up to heal Harry, I, I'm trying to remember if it's in the book, but in the movie, he's like, no. Not you. Not you. He says it in the book, too. He recognizes him by his glittering teeth, kind of like above him. Uh. Not even his face. It's just he could see the teeth, and he's like, oh, no. So there's a lot of problematic issues in these chapters around, like, bodily autonomy that I noticed. So 
the apologies potion is a whole other thing, but also Lockhart treating Harry against his will. He expressly says like, I want to go to the hospital wing. I don't want you to heal me. And Lockhart ignores him basically. And you know, removes all the bones in his arm. So bodily autonomy, um, can you say, say a little bit more about that? The polyjuice potion really disturbs me as an adult. So there's like when, well, as, I guess as a, even as a younger person, I was disturbed by it. Um, but the idea that you can take on someone else's body is really like gross to me. And when, when Harry turns into Goyle and he's like, oh, this is what it's like to be Goyle. It's like, just, it's not it's really, just yeah, it's, it's, not it's not what not, it's like to be Goyle though. It's like, it's what it's, it's like not, to look like Goyle. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've always wondered in the magical world, could like healers use polyjuice potion with a patient's consent to kind of figure out like pain? I've always said like, I want like my chiropractor to feel my back pain <laughs> so they can diagnose it from like <laughs> oh, a personal perspective. Like there's, huh. there is with use with the appropriate conversations ahead of time. It could be a helpful tool to say like, you know, just feel that pain I'm experiencing and maybe share it with me and, and walk a mile in my shoes, literally in the case of, crab and goyle but this is this is gross anyway but it is effective sort of in that they find out you know there's malfoy's not the heir of slytherin he doesn't know who it is right and they get a little bit of dirt on malfoy's family yeah enough enough to do another raid and is right. it is it is the secret room under their stairs the or in, under their hall the one that we yeah. end up in in book seven boy is it ever uh, that's very cool you'll love that yeah so the Polyjuice potion, talking about what you just said, I, I'm trying to think of all the other uses of it, and I can only think of one time it's used with consent, which is the seven potters. And he's not like wild about it, but he, you know, lets it happen. I remember Harry notes in that section, like they were showing his body with more comfort than they would probably for their own. Like they're stripping off their clothes, kind of being like, wow, your eyesight's bad. Yeah. I knew you didn't have a tattoo. Right. Um, yeah. It's really weird when you, when you think about it. And it's because it's not just an illusion. You know, I think about like, um, again, I always think about Dungeons and Dragons spells and you have disguise self, which is an illusion. You just to an outward appearance, you look like somebody else, but you still are yourself. If you get if you get touched or, or prodded, you can still tell that you are who you are. Right. Same with the spell seeming a similar effect. Um, there are very few spells that actually transform your physicality. But this is like their DNA mixed with their current physical iteration. So it does account for Moody's leg being chopped off. Whereas if it was just copying his like, you know, DNA, it wouldn't. It, yeah, you know, but there's his, obviously some magic in the This is a most potent potion. So there's potent. something going on there that, right. that we don't quite know about. We could probably talk about polyjuice for a while, but perhaps. And it will come back. I think even obviously in book four, when we get Moody and Barty Crouch Jr., that's the the extreme case of mm. what you were talking about, identity about bodily autonomy with identity theft specifically. In chapter 10, when when we learn about Hermione's plan to, you, to brew a polyjuice potion, she says, I don't want to break the rules. Mm. I think threatening muggle-borns is far worse than brewing up a difficult potion. She's doing that ranking of yes, uh, uh, kind of ethical ranking, lesser of two evils, right? Lesser of two evils, uh, where when you have to choose between good and bad, it's pretty easy. But mm -hmm. choosing between two bads and or choosing between two goods mm -hmm. is it's much harder. much harder. Uh, and she's doing that there. And you certainly see the reordering of her priorities compared to book one, when getting expelled was like the worst thing in the world. She's kind of expanded her view a little bit. It's worse than getting killed. In book one. Yeah, it's the worst yeah. thing ever. Yeah, and now she's breaking rules left and right. J.K. Rowling uses the word matter of fact twice to describe Hermione's kind of like, here's the plan. You know, you're going to throw a firework in and I'll steal the ingredients because I have better standing in this school and you'll give the boys these drugged cupcakes and take their shoes. She's very precise and logical about it, which is kind of why it's funny when her logic breaks down and she turns into a cat by accident. Yeah, right. She's, she's so prepared for every eventuality except that one. When we're in uh, the hospital wing after the rogue bludger, Dobby talks about getting the worst flogging after burning oh, yeah. his master's dinner. And this is the first time we get the word enslavement. Mm -hmm. I've been waiting for it. And finally, we get it here. Talking, talking about the non-clothes in the, which is the mark of a house elf's enslavement. The, it's interesting that they don't give them clothes because that very basic right of having clothing is what separates sentient creatures from animals. So they're denying their humanity, uh, not humanity, their 
personhood. Yeah, their personhood. Yeah, yeah. By, by not allowing them to have clothes. It's a very appropriate and disgusting you know, way of enslaving a creature or marking that we own you. We think we own you. Dobby then talks about, yeah, he says, he says if, if Harry only knew what he means to us, to the lowly, the enslaved, the enslaved, we dregs of the magical world. There's some internalized oppression there for, for Dobby that he believes himself to be the dregs of the world because that's what the wizards have called the house elves for so long. That's the way he's been treated his entire life. And of course, we'll find out later that Dobby has that, that internalized oppression but overcomes it. Mm-hmm. Once he is freed and and becomes his own his own house elf, but that means it was always inside of his, the this desire to be free is always inside of Dobby. Yeah, um, and he just doesn't know how to to go about doing it, and he needs the help of Harry to 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 get there. But house elves are treated better after Voldemort disappeared. Mm. What I want to know is two things: what was it about Voldemort's rise that allowed magical people to treat house elves more poorly? And what were they treated like before Voldemort? I'm wondering if Voldemort, being the way he is around pure blood uh, rhetoric, gives permission in a way to behave in abhorrent ways, in a way that revels in violence against creatures that are perceived to be different, in a way that gives his followers kind of peer pressure almost to behave in a certain way that is worse than the average how self-enslavement, maybe they were just helpful creatures, but then really being abused in a, in a physical, maybe mental way when Voldemort is risen in power. And that's, that gets a little too close to home in our current political situation. So notice the theme in these chapters of bias, and they're, they're trying to solve a lot of mysteries in the Harry Potter books, and there's this frequent theme of, I think I know the answer, I want to know the answer, I want the answer to be such and such, and they fit the evidence like so many of us do into that worldview. So mm-hmm. um, they want Malfoy to be the heir of Slytherin. So they'll figure that, oh, the chamber was open before. It was probably his father, Lucius. Yeah, Ron's hatred of Malfoy really clouds his judgment. Um, the Hufflepuffs want to see Harry as the potential heir. Oh, so he was chasing a snake towards our friend Justin. They are unwilling to see minutia or nuances that might lead them to a different conclusion because they're so set on their what they perceive to be the right answer. You see that in book one, Snape's evil. Everything he does kind of adds up to that. The best way to do experiments is to have a hypothesis and test that hypothesis, but not to, not to influence your experiment in such a way that you make that hypothesis accurate. Right, whereas they are assembling evidence and saying, see, you know, I'm correct. I have just a few more thoughts about this, and they're a little bit disconnected. One of them is just silly. Whenever I read Peeves, it sounds like Gollum in my head. What? I don't know why. It just, his dialogue, I, I just hear it and it sounds like Gollum. Why it's Potty Weep Potter. What's Potter up to? Why is yep. Potter lurking? That sounds like Gollum to oh, me. Oh, that does sound like Gollum. Sure. What's Potter up to? Oh, God. Why is Potter lurking? <laughs> That's a crossover we all deserve and need. So there's two, I think there's two interesting things for me in chapter 12. One, the introduction of the phoenix, because it's kind of a Christ-like metaphor, right? With the rising from the ashes and that symbol of eternal, eternality. Um, I was actually talking with a friend of mine recently about why phoenixes aren't the best representation for like a good metaphor for Jesus, because the phoenix just keeps on being resurrected and is unchanged, whereas, you know, Christ's resurrection is a transformation. Um, it doesn't just happen over and over again. So the phoenix is actually kind of a depressing creature, I think, despite that being my favorite mythical creature um, of this being in this cycle forever and not really changing ever. Um, that's just my thought about phoenixes. It's a shame that you had to see him on a burning day. Shame is my other theme for chapter 12. There's so much shame that Harry has um, in this. So I think the I've probably ranted on this podcast about my hatred for the house system, despite being a proud Hufflepuff, but Harry's kind of internalized shame around being potentially a Slytherin keeps him separated from so many people. I'm thinking of Brene Brown and that, you know, when we have shame, the best way we can overcome it is to share it with other, with trusted others, opening ourselves up and, and having, finding connection through that shame. Harry has this potential, you know, maybe you were going to, he was going to be a Slytherin. He keeps it pushed down 
It separates him from Ron and Hermione. And thinking of that keeps him from confiding in Dumbledore in that chapter. You know, he asks, is there anything you'd like to tell me? And Harry doesn't fess up and it's kind of hard to watch, but I, I guess I understand it because he has all these fears and all this, all this shame keeping him from wanting to open up for the fear that he might be related to Slytherin. He might be connected in some way to this evil house that's been consigned to the outer darkness. Um, <laughs> keeps him from coming to the truth earlier. And it's not really, it's really not until the very, very end of the book seven when uh, his own children are worried mm. about being in Slytherin that he voices the fact that, you know, Slytherins can be heroic too. Right. And he shares, the only time he shares that is with Albus. He doesn't even share it with Ginny. I think he's, I think Albus is the first person he ever tells. So my last thing is they make a big deal about Goyle being just the biggest doof in the world and just so unintelligent that he, he can't even have a, a, a thought of his own. Mm-hmm. But. But. Goyle's swelling solution works. Oh, that's right. It does. He's successful at potions. He is, he is a successful potion maker. The fact that he's able to keep up with Malfoy at all in the course of the books. Yeah, there might be more going on. Yeah, I just think Gregory Goyle gets a little bit of a bad rap here because he, he can make a potion. And Harry's is runny, but Goyle's works even with a firecracker in it. What are we reading next time? Next time on the podcast for Nerdy Christians, our book club will be tackling chapters 13, 14, and 15. That's The Very Secret Diary, Cornelius Fudge, and Aragog. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. Please check out my new fantasy novel, The Islands of Shattered Glass, on Amazon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Remember that we are made in the image of God. We are not beasts. If the bonds between us are torn, let us reach out, take the first steps, walk in another's shoes, learn to see through their eyes, ask the same of them, and mend what has been broken. We do all this through the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose blessing rests upon us this day and always. Amen. Amen.